Among the reasons that we come together on the Lord's Day is because it's a command. Now granted, we see it as a privilege to come before our God and to pray, to sing, and to do all the things that we do of a spiritual nature. But God commands us to come together and we are grateful for that being a command because we learn much from it. We are here this evening and glad that you are here for that explicit purpose of worshiping our God and doing our very best to grow closer together, to grow in number, to grow in our faith, to grow in our spirit. And it's that concept of growth that I want us to speak on tonight and to consider for just a few moments as you open your Bibles back to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, where we're going to reference here in just a moment. We're going to spend the most of our time tonight in, if I were to give you multiple choice of books of the New Testament, when we're talking about growth, you probably don't need more than one or two books to guess from. And so we're going to spend a lot of our time in the book of Acts tonight. And I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I appreciate our brother Delk reading from that particular text. Where in verse 16, I really want us to think about the text and what it says. And it proves to us that among other things, that churches, when they are in existence as these organizations or organisms or these institutions which God has created and he has blessed us to be a part of the church, that we are directed to grow. Not just to remain stagnant and to be happy with where we are, but we are to, beyond a shadow of a doubt, be men and women who are growing and who are maturing as individual Christians. It says in verse 16 that from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share so that it causes growth of the body. And so you and I are part of an organism, as some have suggested, that is to be growing. We are to be growing in our faith individually. We are to be growing in our faith collectively. We are to be growing in number as more souls are added to the Lord's church as dictated in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 47. Similarly, as we just discussed a couple of weeks ago in the book of Colossians chapter 2, There's a phrase that is used there that I thought was interesting to consider by way of introduction where it says holding fast and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and together by joints and ligaments that it grows with the increase that is from God. And so this is not a sermon where we are going to belabor the point that suggests and teaches that church growth is necessary. Uh, We could certainly talk about that in more detail and look at more passages, but that point is going to be made throughout the common thread of what we're doing tonight. And furthermore, we all agree that we need to grow individually, collectively, numerically, and otherwise. And this is not just something that was taught to the earliest disciples or the earliest Christians or the earliest saints in that they needed to grow because even today, we as local churches need to grow. We're familiar with Acts chapter 20 where David read from this morning. And if you drop down to verse 28 of that text, we read that shepherds in a local church are responsible for feeding and instructing and guarding. And so there are a number of passages that we could go to 
to say that these things need to transpire today as much as they were happening some 2,000 years ago. And of course, as students of the Bible who appreciate what Bible books are about, we know that the book of Acts is largely about church growth. It's about Christians coming to the faith, both from a Jewish background and from a Gentile background. And I want us to look at what caused growth then and conclude that we can learn what helps us to grow today. This is not so much a practical lesson as more of just a principled lesson in terms of looking at when did church growth happen in the book of Acts and how does that transpire to how we grow today. And it may be that there are some things that we think about in the course of our study this evening that you may not have thought of before. And it also needs to be stated that just because we're talking about three or four things that cause growth in the body, that this is not a conclusive list wherein we have excluded everything else. Indeed, extending our grace, which is what we talked about this morning, is part in to who we are as growing as Christians. And this is a congregation that proves time and again that you understand the importance of extending, magnifying, and growing grace. As David talked about this morning, that's something that we do well and always something that we seek to improve and to grow on. Let me suggest to you three or four things that help us to understand church growth from an historical point of view as well as from a practical point of view today. Number one, churches grow when the truth is boldly taught. And you may think, well, that's not totally true because in the religious world where the truth is skirted, where churches are in existence made by men, where the truth is not taught, those churches are growing by leaps and bounds. And they may be growing in number, but they are not growing in faith. And they are not growing in the spirit of what New Testament Christianity is all about. When we go back to passages like Acts chapter 5 and chapter 6, which we'll read from here in just a second or two, we read that New Testament saints, being not afraid to speak up and speak the truth, were individuals who understood that there was a correlation between teaching that truth and the growth of the church. Go back, if you would, to Acts chapter 5, and I want us to read five or six verses here uh, in the middle part of Acts 5, and then we'll go to Acts chapter 6 as well. And so, as promised, we'll spend a lot of our time in the book of Acts and our study together this evening. But in Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, notice where it says, as the apostles are here on trial for yet another occasion because of their standing up and speaking for the truth. And so one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now, what were they teaching? We know what they were teaching. They were teaching the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, fearing the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them and set them before the council, the high priest said, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name. There it is a second time reference to teaching the truth. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said famously, we ought to obey God rather than men. 
The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. If you like writing things in the margin of your Bible, you might write out in those three or four verses, that's the truth. And that truth would have stung That truth would have bothered those individuals who were the early recipients of the gospel message who were hearing that they were responsible for hanging Jesus on a tree. Drop down to about verse 40. They agreed with him. This time talking about the advice or the counsel of Gamaliel. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. What were they commanded not to do? Speak the truth. So they departed from the presence of the council, verse 41, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Again, the truth is being taught. And then chapter 6 and verse 1, notice what happens. Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying... When the disciples were multiplying. After these things occurred, the number of disciples were growing. You would think that by being beaten and being ostracized and being as outcast, that people would say, I don't want to have any part in that. But when the truth is defended and when the truth is taught... God's people are magnified, his message is magnified, and his cause is magnified and glorified. Churches need to understand, both in the first century as well as in the 21st century, to not just teach the truth, but to also reinforce the truth. Turn over, if you would, to Acts chapter 16. In a passage that is likely familiar to you, we are very familiar with the last half of chapter 16. But in chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, I want to briefly read through that text. And I want you to notice what happens at the end of the paragraph. Came to Derbe, he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. Here's our introduction to someone who becomes very important in the biblical story. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because the Jews were in this region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. Now, if you want to circle verse 4 and write out in the margin, what are they doing? They are reinforcing the truth. They are taking the message of the apostles that came by way of the Holy Spirit and they are revisiting, reinforcing that message. And what happened, verse 5? The churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. The fact is, is the truth never gets old and never loses its power such that we should always teach it with boldness. And I say that because we all agree But sometimes we are made fun of in the religious world because of the fact that we teach this book, chapter, and verse. That we rely so strongly on this book. That we are people of the book. We ought not ever apologize for saying, this is what the Bible says. Don't ever say, 
Well, I'm sorry to tell you, but this is what the Bible says. No, I'm not sorry for what the Bible says. I'm going to boldly teach this word and defend this word no matter what it costs. It may mean that I lose some friends or at least have difficult relationships. It may make for a difficult familial situation. It may mean that my business associates no longer want to associate with me. But I'm going to teach the truth because it's right and because as a byproduct... The church will grow when the truth is defended. Secondly, along that line, churches are going to grow when God gets the glory. You're familiar with Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, which is, I believe, a consequential verse where it says that do good works so that when others take notice, the Father in heaven is glorified. Matthew 5, verse 16. But I want us to look at Acts chapter 12 at a really interesting text, at least it seems interesting to me, beginning in about verse 20. And I want us to understand that the focus of everything the church does has to be on God. We come together to worship God. We come together to praise God. We come together to pray to God. And we come together to talk about our Creator because that's the focus of everything that we should do. But there have been people in the history of the world who have proclaimed themselves that they are God. Or at the very least, as in Acts chapter 12, when someone suggests that this is a God, they say, well, thank you very much. That's who I am. And we see the problems that come from that. And then we see the result of that. Well, read beginning in verse 20 through 22. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting. And what did they shout in verse 22? The voice of a god and not of a man. And what should he have done very quickly on that occasion? He should have said, whoa, stop. Before you go any further, I appreciate the praise. I appreciate the fact that you think my oration was wonderful. Indeed it was, he may have said. But I am no God. I am merely a man. Remember, there are other individuals in the history of scriptures who were praised as gods And they immediately stopped and said, do not call us that because we are not deity. We are simply men, servants of the Lord. Well, verse 23, and young people, if you ever are accused by individuals that the Bible is boring, Acts 12, 23, the Bible is not boring. It's exciting and filled with some really interesting stuff. But in verse 23, then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. Because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. There are a lot of bad ways to go. (laughs) But this may be one of the worst. And this man died a horrible death because he did not give God to glory. And then what happened in verse 24? It says, the word of God grew and multiplied. You see, when God gets the glory 
And when men refuse to take on themselves the fact that we are special as God's, God gets the glory. Number three, churches grow when brethren work closely together and when we work in tandem. I'm reminded of Psalm 133. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. This is not merely an Old Testament concept because this is taught in the New Testament on numerous occasions as well. And common sense reminds us that this would be the case. An an organization or an organism like the church is going to work better if we are working in tandem, if we are working hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder. Go back to Acts chapter 2 to what is often called the hub of the Bible. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 44, it says, All who believed, so all these new saints, all these new Christians, these new believers were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity in heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Then drop down in the book of Philippians to a text that we recently read in our Sunday morning Bible study. And in chapter 2, in verse 2, it says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love for one another, being of one cord, being of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Drop down to verse 14 where Paul continues with these very practical pieces of advice. He says, do all things without complaining and without disputing. And then while we're in the New Testament, look at a third passage here in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, where he says, you brethren have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And he says then in verse 16, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The fact is, is when needs come up, we are to take care of them and to take care of each other in those selfless ways. We won't take the time to reread Acts chapter 6. We read verse 1, at least the first part of that. But this is, of course, the occasion where some widows were being neglected, and that was the charge that was levied. And the apostles said, we don't want that charge to exist. We don't want anybody to be neglected. In the spirit of 1 Timothy chapter 5 or James chapter 1 verse 27 and some other passages, we want to make sure that those who are less fortunate are made well and taken care of. And so that's the heart of Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7, wherein people's needs were being neglected, 
wherein a thoughtful response was initiated. And it says that the number of disciples, quote, multiplied greatly. So churches grow when we work together. But what happens, is my question, when we deal with disagreements? What happens when we have our differences? What happens when we have our differences of opinions? We are to deal with those disagreements as best we can and keep ourselves focused on the mission. I want to look at a passage that has always been uncomfortable for me. I I admit freely that Acts 15, 36 through 41 has always given me some consternation or some heartburn because you would like to think that great figures in the history of the New Testament, they always got along splendidly and that everything went well. But they're human beings who have real issues and sometimes have some disagreements. Now, we're not told necessarily what those disagreements are about. I would argue that the Holy Spirit left some of those uh, disagreements uh, blank so that we might better apply them to our own issues and our own situations. But read Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Let's go in and check in on them. Let's go backwards in our trip. Now Barnabas was determined... And that word determined there in verse 37 is a strong word. Some of you might have the word resolved. He was resolved to take with him John Mark. But Paul insisted, yet another very strong verb, insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And then it says the contention. We'll talk about that word here in just a second or two. The contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia. And notice verse 41, strengthening the churches. That doesn't say explicitly making so that the churches were growing, but he's arguing that the churches were growing. Look at what at this particular text. It says here there was a sharp contention. Some versions use the word strife. Some use the words disagreement, a sharp altercation, or a sharp clash of opinion. And their decision was simple. They were going to part ways. And so rather than being a quartet, they would be two duos. And they would go in different directions and depart from one another. The fact is, and please hear me out, how these men dealt with their disagreement, which is beyond the scope of the pages of the New Testament, is far less important than the fact that they each, individually and collectively in their groups of two, continue to do God's will. None of them, in spite of their disagreements over these clashes of opinion or sharp altercation, lost sight of their mission. Because again, in verse 41, we see he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches, and we can assume that not only did one duo do that, but the other duo was in concert with them. 
Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, seem to also suggest that at some point there was a reunion among these brethren who had had this particular disagreement. The point that I'm trying to make is simply this. How these men dealt with the disagreement, again, far less important than the fact that they continue to do God's will. And what often happens with us is we as Christians will sometimes have disagreements with one another over non-doctrinal matters. There's a difference between having a, a disagreement over a matter of doctrine. If I, if I start teaching that it doesn't matter how a person speaks and he can use whatever kind of foul language that he wants, and you say, well, I think that's, uh, in fact, I, I know that's in direct conflict with Scripture. We don't have a difference of opinion. We have a difference of doctrinal interpretation, and that's serious. But when we have some differences on issues where God has not spoken or in the realm of Romans 14 where we have some liberties to be able to speak to one another in ways that we have some disagreements that we can share with one another. What Satan would love for us to do is to use those disagreements as the soil wherein disconsternation can transpire and church growth ends. Because I have seen... And I'm confident that you have seen Christians and churches throughout this land and probably throughout the world where there has been such a division, such a strife, such a disagreement among brethren that they use more of their energy to focus on fighting that fight rather than on keeping the focus where it needs to be. And what happens to those churches? One of two things. They either exist limping along in name only perhaps, wherein I'm convinced that maybe Jesus is looking at them in the lens of Revelation 2 and 3 saying, I'm going to take the candlestick away from you. Or those churches cease to exist because they divide and are conquered by Satan. We can never allow those kinds of disagreements over matters where God has not spoken to keep us from doing our work. Again, I hope that there's not division where we would have to leave one another. But it seems to me that these men in Acts 15 teach us one thing, and that is the work must go on, no matter what the cost is to me. And if that means I've got to sometimes deal with difficult situations and difficult times, I'm willing to do so. Churches grow together when brethren work together. And we've got so much that is important to do. And as I suggested, and let me just conclude on this before we get to our fourth point. If we're not careful, we will spend more time on tearing each other down than on what our primary job should really be. And it is, for anybody that's ever been in a congregation like that, or been in a disagreement like that, or have, you've witnessed it in congregations that you've visited, or maybe you were a member for a period of years while you were living elsewhere because of work or whatever the case may be, it is incredibly frustrating when we want to make progress and instead all we get is discouraged. And if Satan is able to distract us, he wins. And so we've got to make sure that we grow together by working together. Number four, churches grow when great conversions occur, finally. The Apostle Paul's conversion was absolutely amazing. Consider the result of it. Go back to Acts chapter 9 and we're going to look at two 
passages in closing. One in Acts 9, and then we're going to look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 9, and I want us to read verse 26. Now, Acts chapter 9, 22, and 26 are the three chapters where we read, reread, and reread again about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. But here in Acts chapter 9, in verse 26, it says, An angel of the Lord, I'm sorry, Acts 9, 26, it says, Saul had come to Jerusalem after he had been baptized back in verse 19, verse 18 and 19. And it says, He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Incidentally, parentheses, I'm not sure I'd be much different than them if he tried to come and join this particular congregation from the world with a reputation like he had. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out and spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea, sent him out to Tarsus. And then verse 31, where we typically stop the reading, because in my Bible, like yours, there's probably a break there. But verse 31, just read one more verse. The churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. You see, God is all about math. He loves adding and he loves multiplying. But the frightening thing is so does Satan love arithmetic. He loves subtracting and he loves dividing. We've got to figure out which of the equations we are going to be a part of. And the fact is, is when repentance occurs, when people change to do what God wants them to do, when people like Barnabas step up and say, guys, let's give this, 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 this man an opportunity to prove himself to us, good things happen. Go back just a page or so in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8 and verse 18. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Well, that's a big no-no. He's going to get himself in big trouble here in Acts chapter 18 verses 19 and following. Give me this power that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money perished with you, verse 20, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part, he says, nor a portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. What does he tell him to do? He doesn't say give up. He says you need to change. Change the way you're thinking and change the way you're acting. Repent. Therefore, this your wickedness. And pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Then verses 23 through 25. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And Simon, Peter, or Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And then not only consider those historic experiences, but consider our own experiences as well. The fact of the matter is, is all of us want to grow and we want great conversions to occur. 
And when those conversions occur, they are fuel for us to want to see more, which provides fuel to want to see more. It really is, as we talked this morning, a matter of extending our grace by the way that we talk and the way that we live and the way that we conduct ourselves. I believe that the following three statements are absolutely true and that all of us agree to them when it comes to growing together. I believe that each individual Christian present here wants to grow. I don't think there's a single one of us that says, I'm not interested in growing anymore. I want to grow. I want to grow in my knowledge. I want to grow in grace. I'm going to grow in truth. I'm going to grow in spirit. I think we all agree that this is a church that wants to grow numerically, that we want to grow in spirit, that we want to grow in faith, and we want to grow grow closer to one another. And I think we would all agree that to those who maybe are stunted in their growth or those who are not Christians, that we want you to grow as well. Churches and Christians grew in the, old, in, in the olden days, in the earliest days of the church, some 2,000 years ago, when the truth was taught, when God got the glory, when the brethren worked together through division and through problems, and when great conversions transpired. And the same can be the case today. The same is the case today. We see that this church is doing some things well, but let us find areas for us to improve where we can grow closer to each other and closer to what our God wants us to be. Reminds me of what James had to say. Draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. That's what we need to be doing. And we appreciate the work that you are doing in that, in that avenue and hope that you'll continue to be engaged in that. If you're here and you are not a Christian, then we want you to receive God's grace, to be saved from your sins, just as was done in Acts chapter 9, When Saul of Tarsus said, you know what, I'm wrong, I need to be baptized, and he was baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. If that's something you're ready to do this evening, we're ready to assist you. If as a child of God, you are not growing as you should, and we can help you in that process in any way, let us know. While together we stand, while we sing.